Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Growing up in Los Angeles, the arrival of spring meant two things, Passover and baseball. I can warmly recall going to see the Dodgers play on the intermediate days of Passover, matzah, gefilte fish, and kosher for Passover fruit roll-ups in hand a hyphenated Jewish identity, if there ever was one. Passover and baseball. As a player, my abilities in the former were matched only by my inabilities in the latter, thus my career choice. As a spectator, though, my passion for the two remains undiminished. Two national pastimes, one American, one Jewish. My appreciation and knowledge of both coming by way of the memorable tunes, tastes, and languorous hours spent sitting side by side with my father and brothers. Two ritual-filled endeavors, the mid-game stretch, for instance, one for Elijah to take me out of Egypt, one for the seventh inning to take me out with the crowd. Two stories about the ardent aspirations of a people to make it home. Two narratives that conclude but never end, one signing off with next year in Jerusalem, the other with wait till next year. Let the counting of the Omer and the Homers begin. It's said that Solomon Schechter once remarked, you can't be a rabbi in America without understanding baseball. With one Seder behind us and the second Seder this evening, this morning I want to talk to you about baseball, about Passover, about the connection between the two, and what can be learned by way of bringing my two favorite subjects together in conversation. Now, the 2023 baseball season isn't just any season. For those in the know, baseball has introduced some of the most consequential changes in its rules since the introduction of the designated hitter in 1973. These changes include, but are not limited to, increasing the size of the bases by a few inches to encourage base stealing and reduce the odds of collision, the addition of ghost runners and extra innings to cut down on the long games and the wear and tear on pitchers, and the elimination of the infielder shift, a change which, if you're still paying attention, is aimed at addressing the non-traditional defensive strategies that teams have adopted since the rise of sabermetric analytics. While sports radio hosts and their fans busily debate the reasons for and the merits of the above changes, all agree that the biggest change is the addition of the pitch clock. In brief, 
The rule states that when the bases are empty, pitchers will have 15 seconds to throw a pitch, 20 seconds if a runner is on base. Hitters, for their part, need to be in the batter's box and alert with at least eight seconds on the clock. If the pitcher has not started to deliver a pitch in time, he will be charged with the ball. If the batter delays entering the batter's box, he will be charged with a strike. So why was the pitch clock introduced? The short answer is that over the years, the game has gotten longer and longer. In 1970, the average length of the game was about two hours and 30 minutes. In the year 2000, two hours and 58 minutes. In 2021, a whopping three hours and 11 minutes. The game has become bloated. The fiddling around by pitchers and batters getting worse and worse. Attention spans have become attenuated, which when combined with rising ticket prices, resentment over lockouts, and the lingering effects of the pandemic, has thrown the sport of baseball into a defensive posture. Fans were voting with their feet. A change was needed. And while we're just short of two weeks into the season, the preliminary data signals the impact of these new rules. Game time is averaging two hours and 38 minutes, down from 3.11. Batting averages are up to 3.10 from last season's 2.92. Stolen base attempts are up, as is their rate of success. No question, there's an adjustment period. It's taking time for everyone to get used to these new rules. There was a bizarre ending to a spring training game due to a pitch clock violation. And just the other day, Padre slugger Manny Machado became the first player to be ejected from a game for arguing a pitch clock violation. I have no doubt that this season just begun will provide us all with many, many opportunities to argue whether these new rules do or do not hold the keys of redemption for our boys of summer. This morning, I want to narrow the focus of the pitch clock discussion to the Seder table itself. Because if there's one thing a Seder table and baseball have in common, it's that they're two endeavors premised on the rejection of any governance by clock. The whole point of a Seder is to let it unfold at a glacial pace. Think of the five sages of Bnei Barak, who spent the whole night absorbed in the telling of the story of the Exodus from Egypt so long that their students eventually came in to tell them that it was time for the morning prayers. Yeah, there's an order to the Seder that you have to get through, but like a ball game, it's the interruptions, the sidebars, the commentary told around the event that makes it what it is. As the Haggadah teaches, the more one dwells on the Exodus from Egypt, the more one is to be praised. Growing up, the closest we had to a pitch clock was my mother, whose raised eyebrows signaled to my father to get on with it. I remember there being some rule about not eating after midnight, but that was a rule which was honored in my house only in the breach. Only with the introduction of grandchildren, or more honestly, daughters-in-law, did our satyrs start and end earlier and more quickly. The other day, I was speaking to a child of our congregation, now a fabulous young adult, who shared with me that she always believed that the take-home message of the Seder was to teach the importance of delayed gratification. 
to invite a group of people to sit at a dinner table and then have them wait a few hours until they could eat. It was the late Roger Angel who wrote famously of the quality of baseball time and the violence done to it by its NFLification, polluting it with distractions like mascots, rock music trivia, and dance companies. So too, I imagine, a Passover purist reacting similarly to the stunts and gimmicks and abridgments on the market today. You've probably seen the Haggadot, the 30-minute Seder, the Swift Seder, how to create lively Seders. What's next, a TikTok Seder? A pitch clock for the Passover Seder? Heresy, says a purist. Listen, if you must, listen to your podcast at one and a half speed, but don't touch the Seder. The Seder is like a cup of wine, or actually four. It's meant to be sipped slowly. That is its very enjoyment. So where, I ask myself aloud in front of my community, do I stand? As a fan of both baseball and Passover, invested in the sacred past and dynamic future of both, am I an innovator or a purist? Where do I stand on the pitch clock? Well, let me offer three responses, which, if nothing else, will give you something new to argue about tonight. First, I think that the choice of timeless versus time-bound doesn't fully and accurately represent the temporal dynamics of baseball or Passover. There are elements of both in both. Baseball has always had a clock. It just ticks, as Roger Angel wrote, inwardly and silently. The unfolding pace of a baseball game bursts with sudden activity, the rapid release of the ball or the swift crack of the bat, the slow tension that mounts between the pitcher and the base runner who then tears away at breakneck speed to steal second, a temporal juxtaposition that generates the excitement of baseball. It may not be a clock, but time and timing do sit at the core of the sport. It's the reason why the great Jewish ball player Sean Green's book on the sport is called The Way of Baseball, Finding Stillness at 95 Miles Per Hour. And so too with the Seder. Time, mystical time, plays a huge role in the story. The children of Israel are enslaved for centuries and then depart Egypt, Bechatzot, not around midnight, not in the thereabouts of midnight, but precisely at midnight. I've never seen a group of Jews leave an event that quickly. Perhaps that's the real miracle of the Exodus. It's the haste memorialized in the Seder's central symbol, the matzah, a remembrance of the chipazon, the speed by which the Israelites left. There is a clock that's built into the matzah, 18 minutes, one second more, and the matzah becomes chametz. Yeah, the Passover story is a long one. Its arc spans hours and generations, but it's also a tale of a tightly coiled people released in an instant, stealing away in pursuit of home. Timing is everything and everywhere in Passover. You just have to know where to look for it. Second, and this will come as no surprise to any of you who know me, to the question of being an innovator or a purist, pitch clock or no pitch clock, I don't think the answer is either or as much as it is a both and. 
Much as we love to recall those five sages pulling the all-nighter at the Seder, you gotta wonder, where were their wives and kids? My guess is that the former were cleaning up and the latter had long checked out. Neither baseball nor the Seder, nor for that matter Judaism, is intended to be treated as a museum piece. There are ways to innovate and preserve at one and the same time. It's actually what a rabbi is hired to do. As someone once said, to meet people where they are and inspire them to live lives connected to the Jewish tradition. When asked about the pitch clock, a teenager in our community responded, the pitch clock is good, it makes the games faster and it doesn't hurt the game. Now I'm not saying we're gonna start taking away people's aleot if they dilly-dally on the way here to the Torah. But I also have no intention of letting our tradition go the way of city opera or any other institution that thinks that people will continue to turn out for a three hour plus experience. To innovate or not to innovate, like everything else in life, it's a balancing act, a narrow bridge, the yin and the yang of baseball, satyrs, and for that matter, life. As Yogi Berra said, when you see a fork in the road, take it. Third and finally, concluding observation that in some respects is an extension of the first two. As much as people, myself included, like to turn to baseball as a metaphor and meditation on life, the truth of the matter is that neither baseball nor the Seder is at all like life. Seders may be endless and may, baseball may be an endless summer, but life is decidedly not. Life comes with a game-ending buzzer built in, and none of us knows when it will go off. In that sense, baseball and satyrs do not mirror existence, but just the opposite. They offer an escape from existence. They enable us to enter for an afternoon or an evening a timeless story that was told long before the span of our lifetime began and will continue to be told long after our time has passed. An opportunity for we, mere mortals, to sip from the cup of eternity. And it's this observation, I believe, wherein lies our take home. Time, no different than air or water, is a precious natural resource. Neither I nor you should need the reminder of a pitch clock to remind ourselves that the things we most cherish in this world will perish. But sometimes we do, and sometimes it helps. There's a message to the rites of this season. It is that while hope may spring eternal, life does not last forever. And with the backdrop of eternity, may we live our fleeting lives with meaning swinging for the fences, ever living our lives knowing that we have, at the very least, left it all out on the field. Chag Sameach. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, El Bekro Hallelujah, Hallelujah.